So I've become the first presidential candidate in a very long time to focus on serious reform of the Federal Reserve. It has proven itself to engage in a 25 plus year disastrous experiment of trying to hit two targets with a single arrow, balancing, supposedly balancing inflation and unemployment in this country itself based on flawed premises that have resulted in serial disasters that in the name of smoothing out financial crises have actually created them and planted the seeds for creating even more in the future unless we actually do something about it. There's 22,000 plus people that work in this institution when in fact, if it goes back to restoring itself to the narrow purpose it should have in the first place, stabilizing the US dollar, We'd need fewer than 10% of them. If that means a greater than 90% staff reduction, well, that's a big part of the reason why I'm running for U.S. president is to reform an administrative state that's overstaffed when it's overstaffed, finds things to do and finds things to do that are more often than not harmful because there were things that they shouldn't have been doing in the first place. Exhibit A is the U.S. Federal Reserve itself. And on today's podcast, I'm pretty excited to be joined by somebody who, let's just say, knows what she's talking about here when it comes to these issues. Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's here in studio with me. And Danielle, welcome to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to getting right into it with you. Let's get right into it. You you speak my language. Yeah, I think I think we, uh, we're cut from similar cloths here. You're more of a domain expert than I am. For me, this is Exhibit A of the Federal Reserve is Exhibit A of a broader managerial reform that I want to bring to the federal government, but a pretty darn important one. Mm-hmm. Now, you actually, uh, you know, I would say came onto a lot of people's radars starting a couple of years ago in a different context. But I thought some of the people who may have heard of you but may not remember where they heard of you, tie that up and then and then we'll get into the subject matter straight from there. Um, so I think something that we have in common is uh, I, I really don't mince words. Yeah, so, uh, I noticed. In, in March of 2020, uh, I was doing an interview in which I stated that uh, that because the, the Chinese government had introduced an act of war clause, force majeure clause into a trade agreement in September of 2019, which is highly unusual. I look back at other trade agreements in U.S. history, highly unusual to put an act of God clause so that they didn't theoretically have to buy as many soybeans if something went wrong. Right. In corporate contracts, by the way, that's perfectly legitimate. Of course. But it's, it's pretty unusual in trade agreements. In a yeah. trade agreement, very unusual. And I said that because, you know, because the... Taiwanese soccer team, for example, had canceled a, a December soccer tournament uh, in, in, in Wuhan. There, there were many different signs of evidence prior to mid-January 2020 when that trade agreement was finally signed. And then the Chinese government went Who was the trade agreement with? China and the United you're, States. You're just the U.S., bilateral. Just the, yep. just the U.S., just the U.S. And, and all of a sudden, as soon as the ink is dry on the trade agreement, and and Trump has signed it, and you know, the, the photographs going off, lights flashing, boom! There's the act of God. Immediately, China announces that there's a global pandemic that they had long since allowed to get and outside of Milan, outside of Seattle. I called it an act of war. So it was only signed in in January. January. Of course, we, we the lab leak likely occurred in October of 2019, right. if not a little earlier. And again, they had the force majeure clause inserted in September of 2019. In September of 2019 is when they had the force majeure clause inserted in the negotiation, mm-hmm. ink the deal in January 2020. Did they did they try to invoke 
the force majeure clause then? Well, they certainly haven't bought as many soybeans as they committed to. Okay, because it was against the backstop, against the possibility they could pull it because it was in the agreement. Interesting. Interesting. And so and so they ended up buying a lot less under that agreement. Yes. Than they and then have. they spent the rest of their spare time infiltrating my 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 phones, my laptops, everything else. It's been pretty interesting Wait, since how, then. How do you know that? Well, I, I was told not to leave the country. So I kept having devices blow up. Um, and the first time I did leave the country, I, I was in um, Italy. And all of a sudden, my motherboard in, inside of my eye, I, I switched over to the eye platform MacBooks mm-hmm. because I knew that the virus controls were a lot better. And my entire computer went down. Hmm. And I took it back to Apple and they said, this is impossible. You can't corrupt a motherboard. And I said, well, here you have it. And yeah. it, but it was, You said the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. So that's so that that uh, I think put you on a lot of people's radars that whole that whole episode. But your your background before that was in a really in hardcore uh, let's just say monetary policy. Well, you know, so I was I was at the Federal Reserve uh, in Dallas for nine years. Uh, I had my MBA in finance. I started off on Wall Street, just like my boss Richard Fisher had his MBA in finance. Neither of us were PhDs in economics. We saw the world through the prism of the financial markets and the intersection of monetary policy. And rather than look at it as, gee, there's these theoretical PhDs, academics making monetary policy, they have no idea how that plays out in the real world mm-hmm. where people are trying to run companies. So looking at it from that angle, I had a much different perspective of some of the damage being inflicted with Ben Bernanke and then his successor, Janet Yellen. And, and then I wrote a book called Fed Up that went to 22 worldwide. And, and I kind of walked through in layman's terms what went wrong at the Federal Reserve? Let's do it now. So, so lay out your thesis in as condensed of a manner as you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're backing into this from a slightly different angle than I've looked at it, but I think we get to a really mm-hmm. similar place. But let's go through your angle. So, give um, me the thesis. The th- the th- thesis starts with Alan Greenspan not being very popular, and that may sound completely strange. Sebastian Malady did his biography. He was with Bernan- uh, with Greenspan, excuse me, for two years, and he found out that. You know, two months into his term, October 1987, there goes the stock market. Mm. And, and, and Greenspan was that, able to- I didn't to, realize it was two months into his term. August uh, 1987, August 12th, 1987, Greenspan started. But two months in, the stock market crashes, Black Monday, the world is ending, and Greenspan comes out and says, I'll backstop you. And in order to do so, he starts leaking information to trading desks on Wall Street prior to the Fed injecting liquidity into the city, in the, in, in, into the system in the weeks and months that followed Black Monday in 1987, traders started learning because they were being taught that they could front run the Federal Reserve. They could profit from the Federal Reserve. And that culminated in 1998 um, with long-term capital management a hedge fund that blew up spectacularly and Greenspan brokered a deal much in the same way that JP Morgan might have. There were, of course, two banks that refused to sign on to that 1998 bailout of a hedge fund, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. We know what their fate was. Mm-hmm. Um, that also Interesting. gives you a, a Interesting. good idea of- So you think that was part of the sins they were later oh, paying for? In the end, they certainly paid, didn't they? So, 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 so Because walk, AI, walk AIG, was, AIG was saved, right? So, 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 so what, so there's a lot there. What was- um, what was Alan Greenspan's mentality in thinking that providing these leaks on Fed policy, why would that be good for the system in his this view? This is all about the, the, the broken notion of trickle down. Okay. If there's wealth created, then there will be jobs created and economic growth will flourish. We don't see, we see trickle down when it comes to trickle down pain. 
So if my if my share price goes down and my earnings per share are low, I haven't bought back enough stocks, then I'm going to fire people. That's how trickle down works. Trickle down does not work with wealth. And yet Greenspan, Bernanke, they, they thought that if we create enough wealth in the stock market, then the people who benefit will thereby invest more in the economy and invest more in growth and, and, and propel the economy forward, even though time and again, that's been proven to not be the case because we've watched very visibly the inequality divide grow in the United States because we now have the top so, 1%. So, so back, but back to the point of what tactically, what did Greenspan think he was doing by engaging in front run leaks, like send out optimistic behavior that begun to send well, it, price and, and, signals, and optimistic it, it signs. It began, yeah. to, it began to distort price signals. Okay. And that's, that's the key here is that we don't know. Buyers and sellers used to come together in a marketplace much the same way they did in medieval times, bartering and trading crops. But now they were coming together with this invisible middle person in between, the invisible hand of the Federal Reserve, benefiting investors to the detriment of the rest of the economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, Greenspan began to unlevel the playing field. Bernanke made it 10 times worse when he came in. So, so you back to back to Greenspan, though. You're, so you're saying then... Uh, when long-term capital management hedge fund famously blew up in the late 1990s, mm -hmm. and you want to talk a little bit about that crisis? That was right what after the there. first Russian debt default. Right. So, so, so they had a bunch of trades that kind of unwound in the wrong direction after Russia defaulted. A bunch of banks did step in, brokered by Greenspan, to effectively what buy up those assets in a in a orderly way, as they and it was, would call it. I think it, it was $100 million at the time. I mean, it's money that we think of as being chump change, if you think of Fed policy and the trillions of dollars. Right, right, right. Um, but it was still nonetheless him saying, we're going to choose winners, we're going to choose losers, we're going to distort capitalism. And, and so who ended, up buying the, who ended up buying up the assets? It, it was eight banks out of 10 that were called upon. Got it. And, and the distortion that you would say is even though the banks are buying it up, they weren't doing it really on their own volition. It was sort of the invisible fist of government saying, hey, guys, mm -hmm. get in the room and make this happen or else. It was it the was, two people who refused right. to ended up being the ones that ended up not getting really bailed out by the government in 2008. Sort and of and to making. completely violate the idea of non sequitur, what bank in the United States today that is a victim of its own internal um, uh, abuses against uh, lending and what have you. But what bank today is on the outs right now? And that's Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. They're on the outs. And it was the chair of, of Wells Fargo at the time that they did TARP who said, I don't need the money. Mm. Don't make me take the money. Mm -hmm. And our government was like, everybody has to take the money. So you're saying that it's sort of like the uh, the Fed never forgets kind of mentality in the sense that when it comes the next time around, mm -hmm. you'll be you'll be the one left holding the bag unless you play along the game. That's sort of the the, the basic thesis here. Mm -hmm. So so uh, so then talk about how that planted the seeds then for you know Bernanke and what happened in 2008 and and maybe get into the weeds now a little bit with so, your um, with your so observations. Dodd, Dodd Frank was passed. The Dodd Frank Reform Act was passed. Of course, we know that. Frank was on the board of Signature Bank that recently failed. Um, the ironies of the world, right? Um, but Dodd-Frank was passed 
in Dodd-Frank, it required- sm- In early 2009. Yep. In early, it, right after the OA crisis. It required small banks, small community banks, the backbone of the U.S. economy to be quote unquote stress tested. And I'll just boil this down. When you're stress tested by a U.S. regulatory institution, that means that you have to hire compliance individuals to make sure that you are are. are are complying with all the regulations, new regulations that are being imposed upon you. As a result, to offset this cost of dead overhead, smaller banks got deeper into commercial real estate lending, which is the burgeoning crisis in the U.S. economy today. They got steeped in commercial real estate lending before somebody finally pulled the plug in 2019 and said, it's not appropriate that that we are putting this onerous level of regulation on smaller banks. So they they finally backed away from that, but the damage had been done by then. Meanwhile, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we can get into what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, in 2007, to back up to Bernanke, uh, he brings together a few individuals at the annual Jackson Hole Symposium, which is kind of the Super Bowl of central bankers. This is in, in 07. This is in, in, in August of, of 2007. He brings together his closest confidants as opposed to the entire Federal Reserve Board, the entire Federal Open Committee to have a legal quorum to make very large decisions. And it is blueprinted at the time in a private room in Jackson Hole that in order to potentially launch what they called large scale asset purchases, what we call quantitative easing in layman's terms, before you could go that route you had to get the interest rate down to the zero bound, zero percent. Zero percent interest is what I call the original sin. Which which they decided to implement when? They decided to implement it if and when the need arose. Well, got of it, course, the need arose when, when Bear Stearns had several hedge funds blow up in March. So and then by the time- that, that, that like sort of in, in, in August of 2007, seven. they were preparing- for crisis signals in 08 and to pave the way for getting to zero interest rate. Yep. We call it the Bernanke Doctrine. Uh-huh. And Policy. And this was very much central, was, central planning at its worst. Yeah. And, and do you think he was there sort of with his closest confidants and advisors to actually test his own suppositions there? Or was it to grant it a veneer of legitimacy? Like, what do you think was going on there? I think, I, I think that there was a lot of agreement in that room. But when you bring together your closest advisors, that's what you tend to get. Mm-hmm. You don't get Do the, other- the other- Fed governors felt the same way or would have pushed back had they been Absolutely. part of that? Absolutely. Oh, gosh. And, and is it normal for- Would it have been normal for them to have been there? Yes. So you think it was kind of an intentional decision on his part to- Lay out the blueprint. Leave them out. Okay. So lay out the blueprint, but to leave them out of the picture. You think that was an intentional decision? Uh, Quite a few people believe that if you take interest rates to zero, you introduce all manner of poor investing decisions, speculation, things that we've seen play out. The booms and the busts that you described. Right, right, right. And that's what happens when there's no cost of funding. So, 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 that, so, the lay, so, so walk through the series of events and sort of lay out your exact thesis about what exactly went wrong there. Well- you don't have to necessarily have interest rates at zero or even worse in Europe or in Japan, negative interest rates in order to spur the economy along. When Lehman did go under, 
there was this sense of immediate panic that the global financial system was going to implode, that something we call systemic risk, every central banker's worst nightmare. And that is risk that becomes unhinged and infects the global financial system to where you you start a daisy chain of events that cannot be stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, so arguably, even though the Federal Reserve created the backdrop that created the housing bubble that burst in the first place, they had to come in and triage as if they were emergency room doctors. So some could argue that quantitative easing, that first one, needed to be done. You needed to come in and say, we're going to buy up treasuries. We're going to re-instill confidence in the financial system. But they could have done it from 2% mm-hmm. instead of the 0% floor. Mm-hmm. And that would have so maintained it was, it was more discipline. It buying back of buying of assets to support the asset price levels while actually taking down the Fed funds rate to zero, to effectively 0%. Mm-hmm. And so your point is, in retrospect at least, we needn't have gone to that extreme measure because it created sort of a culture of addiction to that possibility amongst financial market actors that then created the risks for speculative behavior that Mm -hmm. resulted in poor capital allocation in the decade that followed that plants the seeds for some of the challenges that we're facing today. Is that is that a kind of a fair summary? That, that is very fair. And in the middle of this, uh, as, as speculation took off, as the unicorn was born, as venture capital funding was just everywhere, all you had to have was a pulse and you could get a few billion right. dollars. Um, years into this, you have Greg Becker, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, lobbying Congress. So you've got small banks suffering unnecessarily under too much in the way of regulation. And then you have somebody like Becker come in and successfully lobby to say $50 billion banks don't need to fall under such onerous regulations. You should lift that $50 billion to $250 billion so that we can lend more, so that we can generate more economic growth as a banker. So, so, so don't just, don't put me under a microscope. Let me have my way. And that was very successful lobbying in 2015 that allowed Silicon Valley to become the second largest bank in US history to fail, followed a few days later by the third. But again, these should not be under the purview of Congress people who are not they're, they're not supposed to be able to understand the intricacies of bank regulation. And yet that's it's 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 just it's a piecework patchwork way of making policy that just has done this country wrong. Now, let's let's talk about the Silicon Valley Bank piece just to sort of um, understand the distinction of that lobbying. What he what they were saying was the Dodd Frank um, community bank stress test levels from 50 billion, whatever applied to below 50 billion should apply equivalently all the way up to a no, cap of no, 250 billion. He was saying lift the ceiling to 250 yeah, billion. from 50 billion. Don't make me raise more capital. That will constrain my ability to help this wonderful Silicon Valley right. unicorn now, in theory, machine. Th- in theory, though, that should still have been uh, no worse off for the banks that were under 50 billion. He just got to be regulated under the same capital requirements that banks that were previously under 50 billion in assets. So he cr- were what he did was create a new a new category of too big to fail. 
So it used to be just a handful of banks. Right. Understood. Understood. And he took it further down the, the, the chain. While um, still, on the other hand, the too big to fail banks actually had more strict capital requirements than he actually had, mm -hmm. but functionally grew into a category where push comes to shove, you know, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury would have to step in in some way anyway. Plus, of course, these largest banks are conducting quantitative easing. When the Federal Reserve is buying treasuries or mortgage-backed securities to grow its balance sheet, it is doing so with a broker-dealer. So that is a full line of business for these banks. Do they get paid when the Federal Reserve does that? Of course, it's a trade. Yeah. And, and so it's sort of a commit, standard commission, volume-based trade. Yeah. It's a nice, nice, nice work if you can get it. Yeah. Now, it's not just banks, right? It also flows through the likes of BlackRock, et cetera, who are, I think, trading some of these bond buying now, programs. Now, BlackRock always benefits. Yeah. They're always the one in the background advising the Fed. Of course, you don't advise somebody without an advisory fee. Um, but, they get paid advisory fees for that work, but of course, okay. And and you know, but when that happened uh, during um, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, for for those of us on the inside at the time, we said this is this is crossing a Rubicon to have because the New York Fed has a markets desk, a robust group of its own, as opposed to necessarily needing outsiders to come in and consult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what what would you let's just sort of go back to the post two thousand eight era? Mm -hmm. Like what would you have done differently had you been in charge at that point in time? I like to say I would have raised the floor. I would have never taken interest rates to the zero bound in the first place. Mm -hmm. You introduced speculation that was just where were unnecessary. They? Where were reason. they before they were reduced to zero? We used to think of normal in the four to five percent range. So and you now, would have cut it to like two percent. Just cut it to 2%. I think that that's one of the reasons Powell's trying so hard to damn getting ahead of myself to get interest rates up to a level that's high enough that we don't necessarily have to revisit that zero bound. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, going back to Dodd-Frank, Dodd-Frank made it much more difficult to, to run an investment bank like a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. So you had the biggest brain drain in the history of mankind leave the conventional banking system and fill into the private equity world, the shadow banks, mm -hmm. the individuals who effectively run the global financial system. That is where all of the talent went mm -hmm. so that they could keep on with the business of speculating with more leverage than what the conventional system banking system was allowed. And now we find that the shadow banking system globally is... $240 trillion in size. Because we just hit it from, you know. Well, it, it is hit in. The conventional banking system globally is $180 trillion. And these are wholly unregulated sectors, whether BlackRock is, is part of it. You name any money, money manager, they're part of it. Blackstone, mm -hmm. Apollo, Carlyle. These are all parts of the shadow banks that could effectively take down the global economy. But created by Dodd-Frank is your point. As an outgrowth. As an outgrowth, yes. Yeah. So, so again, if, if you were to sort of lay out your wish list after 2008, it would have been maybe one round of quantitative easing after Lehman. Staunch the bleed. And then interest rates never had to go to a floor of zero, maybe 2%. Yep. 
and, 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 and don't then pass let, Dodd-Frank. Let the chips fall where they yep. may. Let companies go out of business that would have otherwise gone out of business. Had Bernanke not said, oh, no, 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 not yet. Let's do, let's do QE2. Oh, no, no. Let's do, let, let, let's do the twist, operation twist. Let's do QE3. And all it did was, con- just was feed speculation and train investors. I only have to be exposed to the stock. The Federal Reserve will never let me lose money. You know, what would you say um, to those who then just to take a rearview mirror to that last decade and say, okay, fine. Yep. There was a little speculation. Markets are a little bit hot. Assets got a little overpriced. We're correcting for that now. But all things considered, the area under the curve since 2009 wasn't so bad. People are still better off today than they were in 09 on a, you know. On paper? On 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 paper. And so- What's the big deal? I mean, 10, year, 10 12 years is a, is a long period of time. It's a significant portion of an individual's lifespan. Many people who are alive then are dead today mm-hmm. and had, you know, I'm just playing the other side out here. Sure. Four, that's 14 years. Yeah. Are, are we sure that that was such a, are well, we to, to, call, to call that 14 year um, spur, you know, sort of, sort of a run, such a bad thing? Well, it certainly has not felt bad for owners of financial assets, for people who are invested. But given the state of the U.S. economy right now, 90% of individuals in finance, in banking, are are screaming at the top of their lungs that, that, that Jay Powell needs to be drawn and quartered. You, you had, you had, Rick Scott and Elizabeth Warren co-sponsor a bill. When would you ever think that those two would be bedfellows trying to strip the Fed of some of its regulatory authority? He's Jay Powell's clearly being uh, propped, prompted to be the fall guy. But everybody's saying, and, and so I'll throw the question back to you, that the only way that the United States economy can flourish is if interest rates are taken back to zero immediately. And the Federal Reserve starts to buy all of the treasuries again, as it did in the aftermath of the pandemic, which created overnight this massive inflation. Mm-hmm. Because in, in the real world, banks exist for the reason of determining who qualifies to get credit. But if you directly deposit trillions of dollars into the bank accounts of U.S. households with no intermediary, uh, no, no credit institution, no bank in the middle. You give people all of this cash, they spent it and they spent it all. And the dream, I think, of many progressives that I don't consider to be patriots mm. is to have the Federal Reserve an effective de facto branch of the Treasury Department that just does the Treasury's bidding. Bidding, yep. yep. You keep interest rates at the zero bound for all of the people who don't, for all of our donors. And you buy up all the treasuries so that we can, so that fiscal deficits will never matter again. And of course, that that spells I mean, that the is, end of the United States of America as we know it. That is the heart of of <clears throat> modern monetary theory, you could say. Or Very much so. There is this sort of strange alliance of bedfellows who on Wall Street are pretty interested, who normally don't ally with that ultra progressive vision of, say, taxation policy mm-hmm. to say that, OK, okay no, no, we won't do it through taxation policy. 
we'll just do it through modern monetary theory. Right. Write a Goldman Sachs paper to give it the veneer of legitimization, white paper or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being sort of a, a – it's kind of like a marriage that I sort of talked about in my in my first book, uh, Baiji, which is a marriage between the woke identitarian climate change obsessed left mm-hmm. and Wall Street in the aftermath of 2008, which was really uh, a way of defanging the Occupy Wall Street movement. There's sort of a version of that now when it comes to fiscal policy, where traditional conservatives would say, you know, spend less, tax less. Progressives would say, spend more, tax more. They say, let's actually make a deal and say, spend more, tax less, modern monetary monetary theory that says the Federal Reserve will make up for it by allowing the Treasury to spend as much as it wants to without the punitive tax increases to go with it. That's that's effectively a different kind of grand bargain. Right. Embedded and, and, but in you've also just modern monetary but you've theory. also just described the end of as we know it of checks and balances. Interesting. Yeah. Because the executive branch and the legislative branch are in on the jig together. With Wall Street. That's right. So so what what do you think a US president can do oh. to address this unholy alliance between not only branches of government, but between these movements on the far progressive left and self-interested, you know, Wall Street shills. What, what what can the next U.S. president do for the benefit of the financial system and for the country itself? So I think some very difficult decisions await uh, a leader who has the future of all Americans at heart. I think the dual mandate is broken, as you first yep. described it. I think the United the, the Federal Reserve should go back solely to safeguarding the value and the sanctity of the U.S. dollar, and the private sector is capable of, with capitalism as a backdrop, tending to the labor force, except during times of recession. Then you come in with social policies, but not the type of social policies that the people of the modern monetary theorists dream of when that is that is creating a society of indentured servants with no desire to work when you think about the cares act $2500 extra per month the median rent in the united states in april of 2020 when the cares act was signed into law was $1850 no student loan payments average working mother of two single working mother of two overnight was getting a, a salary of 61,900 to not work. And what we see today is job openings unfilled in childcare, job openings unfilled in the home health sector, because so many people were paid to not work. Yeah. And and you know, what's interesting is that this had broad bipartisan support. I mean, Trump was in favor of this. Josh Hawley was in favor of this. Mm -hmm. In fact, they said they wouldn't sign it unless those payments were increased. Right. To $2,000 People, a month people forget that, that Trump was insisting on the $2,000 and that Biden made good on Trump's promise. That's right. That's One of the right. first things he did get when he got into office was say, well, Trump wanted $2,000. You only got $600. Here's your extra $1,400 right now. And that was that was the extra fuel on the inflationary fire that really got things going. In addition to Biden extending the employee retention credit that is now become a massive cottage industry. And one of the biggest ironies, you, know, you get this Democratic president who, who's created, extended one of the biggest slush funds for the wealthy in the history of mankind. But the, the, the heart of your point about the next president, you say, we'll have an opportunity. 
Plus to reform the Fed. Means to reform the Fed, but even in, in, the, in the face of the next crisis that we face, to resist the siren song of intervention to actually let some institutions fail. Absolutely. Rather than actually repeating the mistakes of, oh, but, but what happens when push, and, and I'm not going to, and that's why I'm in this race, to make sure that we have somebody with a spine of steel and with actual fortitude to stop from, you know, let's say giving in to the siren song of just this time, this time will, this time is different to say, no, this time is actually not different. We're finally going to do what is a market disciplining event that might be very short run painful, but long run actually set up a banking and financial system that understands it can stay, it ought to stand on its own two feet mm -hmm. without the government and, playing a central planning and role. And be regulated and be properly regulated, not, like not overly regulated. I don't think we need an OCC and we don't need this patchwork of regulatory institutions. We need one large regulator who actually knows the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. Mm -hmm. There was a bank in Janet Yellen's San Francisco Federal Reserve District. She was trying to throw them a lifeline on the same day. This is when the heat of the crisis was breaking out that another regulatory institution was trying to shut them down. I mean, you could cut so much Frictional fat cost, out of yeah. the system if you just had one modern day big data, bring it all up to what modern technology offers, banking regulator for the whole financial system, whether you're on the outsides, BlackRock, Blackstone, or on the inside, JP Morgan Chase, Silicon Valley Bank. And what do you think would be the remit of that, ought to be the remit of that regulator, if you, even if you did have it? Well, I think you should I think you should run your bank in a manner in which if something goes really wrong that uh, you will be allowed to fail and not hurt you, everybody else. You'll be allowed process. to fail, period. And not have everybody in Washington say, Oh my gosh, there's gonna be contagion, we must backstop everybody. And that's where what we call moral hazard. That's that's the oxygen that feeds moral hazard is changing the rules as we go because it's always the next disaster. Now, you have to set up institutions to where they can fail. Do you think that the existing, let, let's say, let's say we are where we are because we're not starting from a blank slate. Do you think that if given that, because this is where the question actually gets hard, the rubber hitting the road is that JP Morgan Chase, you know, Goldman Sachs, whatever it is, is that something that we live in a position today where we can indeed afford to let them fail should that circumstance arise, making that choice. Because that's really um, you know, sort of the situation we were in even in 2008, maybe now on steroids. Mm -hmm. But it would be nice to wish to get to a place where any one of them could. But if our starting point is that they're not, how do you break that cycle of repetition how would you what do you think is the framework for making that choice? Because I think I think in the next few years we're going to be given the opportunity to <laughs> to put it kindly, to make that choice. How should the next chair of the Federal Reserve, Secretary of the Treasury, President of the United States, make that determination to say that I'm going to think on the timescales of history rather than on the timescales of an electoral cycle and just let it fail anyway and let it rip? So th there is a framework. There is an organizational structure. There is a way to take a bank and split it into pieces to where the government is able to take what's valuable, the good bank, if you will, and get the value from that and let the bad bank go. And that was, th these are things that actually the, the, the FDIC of all entities has a framework that has that they have spelled out that allows you 
to take down the creditors, shareholders, and also give the depositors haircuts, as should have been the case, by salvaging the good values, the good assets on the bank balance sheet and letting the entity go. In the Silicon Valley Bank case, for example. In the Silicon Valley case, for example, where those uninsured deposits should have been haircut it to 80 cents on the dollar, call it what you will after the dust had settled. Yeah. Provocative conversation. I think your head's in the right headspace. And I think the, the question is, <laughs> when the moment calls mm -hmm. to actually not succumb to the temptation of saying, yes, but for reasons X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. we just can't do it this time. Right. That's, a, that, that's what happens every time. That's what happens every time. Question is, do you have leaders who are willing to sacrifice their own short-run self-interest? That's right. To be able to actually do what's right for the country. Whether that's true of our foreign policy, whether that's true of our, our monetary policy, that's the question Look, of what we, leadership's all about. We, we, have, we have examples in our midst. We have Pat Toomey. He made some very difficult decisions that were very hard for people inside the Federal Reserve, but he stuck to his commitment. He stuck hmm. to his commitment for term limits, and he was very effectual as a, as a politician. And, and there, the ability to exist and, and work with a great administration, if you've also got strong individuals in Congress, it's there. We can't give up on the United States of America. It exists. We just need a, you know, a, among other places, leadership in the White House to actually absolutely see that through and put the people in place, for example, in running the Federal Reserve who share that same conviction. The, the Federal Reserve Act mandates that the president instill, put leaders at the top of the Federal Reserve who are representative of the entire geographic constituency and industries, as opposed to a bunch of MIT PhDs in economics. That's not what was envisioned. And a strong president would be able to change the leadership structure of the Fed and reform it. And by the way, in my case, with the 90% headcount reduction to go with it, because we're going to put go it back it. to a normal, normal, uh, normalized function of stabilizing the US dollar, which doesn't take 22,000 people to Does do. Does not. So- well, good. Well, thanks for thanks for joining. Very provocative discussion. Learned a lot, and you know, I think your your message is, I think, a bold one for inspiring whoever the next president is. I'm I'm running to be that person to actually have the fortitude and conviction of spine to do what I would say, you know, four or five cycles of Republicans and Democrats alike in the White House have failed to do. We can only hope that you succeed. Yep. Seriously, we can only hope that you succeed. Appreciate that. Thanks for joining. Appreciate. Thank it. you for having. I'm Vivek Ramaswamy, candidate for president, and I approve this message. Paid for by Vivek 2024.